Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Jeff Strong. I am uh, one of the pastors at Nelson Covenant Church. And I say that because I'm not the regular pastor here. Uh, Mary Beth mentioned that there are some guests or visitors, so if this thing crashes and burns, don't hold it against the good people of Balfour Church. Get a good night's sleep, go through a week, come back, reset on Sunday. Uh, these children's times are really special, and they're really formative for kids. We started doing them at Nelson Covenant. I'm kind of working on a little catechism uh, this year, and so we're kind of doing God questions every week, and we, a few weeks ago we got to the Ten Commandments. And my wife's always harping on me because she's like, you don't give them a chance to answer because kids are going to say hilarious things. So don't just say the question and then answer for them. Give them the mic and let them uh, throw out whatever's in their uh, strange imaginations. And everyone will laugh and it'll be great. It'll be a highlight. So I'm like, no problem. I'll do it. Ten Commandments is a good one. So we're sitting there and most of the kids are aged, I don't know, three to uh, eight and uh, I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to learn about Ten Commandments today. What is the law of God is stated in the Ten Commandments? And I said, have you guys ever heard the Ten Commandments? And some of them are like, nah, you know, kind of, nah. I think so. Okay. Uh, does anyone know any of the Ten Commandments? And I think this is really clever, because what I want to happen is I want them to say something like, don't eat candy without eating your dinner first or something. And everyone goes, ha, 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 it's hilarious. Children and their cuteness, they're so innocent. Uh, instead, what happens is they're all silent except for one eight-year-old girl who, whose hand jets up into the air. And I said, oh, Lily, uh, uh, great. Uh, w- do you know any of the commandments? You shall not commit adultery. <laughs> okay, we're done here, kids. Let's pray. <laughs> Sunday school. Talk to your parents about that. God bless. <sighs> Gotta be careful when you hand over that mic. That is... I did not see that coming. Uh, At the Nelson site, we've been moving through a series called Understanding the Spiritual Journey. We've been looking at different decades of life. What does it look like to be a disciple? What are the unique challenges to discipleship that face us through um, childhood decade, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s? Um, And I really thought it might be good. This is a message that I uh, recently preached on the 60s and beyond. But I think it's really important for all of us. Because a lot of the themes in this message are things that even if we aren't in that stage of life, I think it's really important for us to begin thinking about and praying about. I want to throw out a statistic that I read in a book called Regenerating Generations that was recommended to me a few weeks ago. The book actually begins with this statistic. And that is that every day in the U.S., 10,000 people turn 65. Every day. And that will continue until 2029. At least 10,000 people will turn 65 every day until 2029. So there is this booming new opportunity for mission to those who are not Christian, represented in that age category, and from those who are Christians entering into what we maybe have traditionally understood as retirement age, There's a new challenge to the church to make and deepen disciples moving into the later stages of life. Again, the retirement age was established at 65 because there was about a five to seven year window after that where that was the life expectancy. Now you're looking at more like 20 to 30 years. 
And so life has changed a lot in the, uh, since uh, even a few generations ago. We're moving into the later stages of life is uh, moving into uh, years and decades where the potential and opportunity for significant, not just discipleship, but service and contribution remain very, very high. Now, that clashes with a cultural milieu, a kind of a vibe in our culture that associates aging with decline. A prevailing attitude in our culture suggests that, suggests that getting older is predominantly about decline on every level. And there are many cultural assumptions about aging that when taken together lead to something called ageism. Maybe you've heard of racism. Um, ageism is a tendency to regard older persons as debilitated, unworthy of attention, or unsuitable for employment, and I would add, or significant contribution. Now, if you're a Christian, you should hear that definition and be able to immediately reject it on biblical grounds. And that's because throughout God's Word, the aged are cited as resourceful people with valuable gifts to share for the good of everyone. In Exodus 7-7, Moses and Aaron are chosen to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage at the ages of 80 and 83. Caleb, who accompanied Joshua to the Promised Land, exclaimed, So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go, to go out into battle now as I was then. Daniel was over 80 when he served as one of the governors of Babylon and was thrown into the lion's den. These are only a few of the many references to the benefits and blessings that God can do in us and through us only as we move into the later decades of life. So in short, the Bible doesn't discount a person due to the natural process of aging. And if that's true, and if God never discounts a person due to the natural process of aging, then we shouldn't either. Our churches shouldn't either. And because the Bible and God never discount a person due to the natural process of aging, our modern cultural concept of retirement is nowhere found in the Bible. Retirement has been defined as the act of retiring, withdrawing, or leaving, or the state of being retired by someone or something else. Now this, this stage of life, this opportunity called retirement, from many voices is held out as a tremendous ideal within our culture. And yet, there's something wrong, there's something that um, our culture isn't telling us about this promise of retirement as conceived by our culture, which tends to be an invitation into a life of ease. And that is, depression along the human lifespan peaks in two areas. It affects everybody, but it peaks in two stages of life. The first is adolescence, and the second is the first five years after retirement. That's when depression spikes along the human journey. And it, sp it spikes in the first five years after retirement because God set Adam and Eve in a garden 
and gave them a mission to cultivate and bring out the potentiality of the garden. And when you listen to voices within or voices from without that say, you don't need the garden anymore, that's for someone else. You can just enjoy everything. Sounds great, and it is enjoyable for a few weeks or a few months, but then what begins to set in is this sense of meaninglessness, purposelessness, a dryness, and a slow depression. You're literally depressing part of your God-given impulse and your God-given calling, I believe, in Christ. As Christians, we are to continue Christ's work in the world until our final breath. There's no chronological age at which we're released from the responsibility of advancing Christ's mission. So yes, we might retire from a certain kind of work, but we never retire from seeking God's will and purposes in order to serve them and to glorify Him and to do good in the world in His name. We never retire from that responsibility. On the contrary, in biblical times, we see again and again those who are considered old or advanced in years, full of days. Sometimes the Bible uh, talks about them as being full of days. We see these people continue to live out their callings, engaging in whatever ways God has directed them, in much the same manner as their younger counterparts. Are there limitations physically? Absolutely. There are limitations that come with age. But we never see in Scripture uh, men and women of God getting to a point and saying, I'm out, this has been great, I'm now just going to kind of shift into neutral and just drift down the road, or I'm going to stop rowing the boat and just drift down the, the river and see where it takes me. Like I said, the expression of our Christian lives is going to look very different during decades where we might retire from a particular job, but there are a few characteristics that, are going to that should continue to be a part of our lives if we're following Christ, growing, nurturing our faith, seeking to be a disciple at every stage of life, and including the latter decades. I want to look at Psalm 71. So if you have a Bible, you can turn in it to Psalm 71. Psalm 71 is a psalm that's written by someone who's advanced in years, looking back over their life. It gives us a lot of counsel on how to age gracefully. What does it mean and what does it look like to age gracefully, full of grace? I'm going to be looking predominantly at verses 15 to 21. There's a lot in this psalm, but I'm going to focus on verses 15 to 21. The psalmist begins by saying, My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate to them all. Relate to them all. Sorry, relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Now notice that the psalmist has a longing to share the greatness of God with other people. He can't keep quiet. He doesn't see his faith as something that just is alive in his heart. And he just keeps it, mm, it's just me and, me and God. He's like, i got to declare this. i got to get this out of me. I've got all these uh, ways in which I want to proclaim and share God's greatness and glory, and if I don't get it out, I'm just, you know, it's, just, it's being stored up in me and it's driving me crazy. This is an impulse to proclaim. Why does he have this impulse to proclaim? Where is this coming from? 
He says in verse 17, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. See, the psalmist has been attentive to two things in his life. He's been attentive to God's word, and he's been attentive to God's workings. Since my youth, God, you've taught me. You've taught me through your word, through wise counsel, through through people who know your word. I've sat at your feet and I've learned God. And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. I proclaim the great things that you've done um, for my ancestors, but also in my life. I've watched and observed and reflected on how you have brought about amazing answers to prayer in my life. And I've observed that in other people. And because the psalmist has wrestled with God and dug into God's word every day and he's been observant to God's working, there's just this slow burn momentum that gets built where at the end of his life he has a very different experience than many people in their latter decades who feel tired, um, maybe apathetic, maybe overcome by cynicism. He says, I I just got to share this. I want to pass on what has been built into me, what God has shown me. There's this wellspring of joy and excitement in him, and it's one that fuels his desire to declare the greatness of God in word and deed. And this is why I want to to bring this back to everybody in the room. For some of you, you might be like, well, I'm not in this stage of life, so do I just like save this sermon and pull it up again in, in two or three decades? Hear, the, hear this now, because th- th- I think this is a really important key for everybody in the room, whether you're 15 or 50 or 90. You know, we prepare for a quality second half of life. We prepare for a meaningful final two, three decades of our life by investing in our relationship with God right now, starting right now. A lot of people do life thinking, well, I'll get to the God stuff later when I've got more time, when, uh, yeah, it's just not really, it's not of interest to me. I've got a lot of other things vying for my attention, so I'm not like against God or Christianity or stuff like that. I just, uh, that's like a retirement hobby that I'll pick up. And when you do that, if you do that, you won't experience what the psalmist will is experiencing. Since my youth, I have learned and grown, and now I have decades of testimony of what God has done in me, and it's exciting. So I'm going into these final years, these final decades, with this inheritance of faith and momentum that God has built through ways big and small, often small, small little moments of obedience, saying no when it's right to say no, saying yes when it's important to say yes, as Elaine was saying. We prepare for a quality retirement age in these final decades by investing in our relationship with God now. So do it now. Start now, wherever you are. Start now. Verse 18, Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all, to, uh, your mighty acts to all who are to come. This is a challenging verse because in it we see that the psalmist is rejecting the curse of retirement. He is not looking forward to a stage of life where he gets to dismiss responsibility, where he gets to shelve his calling, where he gets to hit the pause button or the stop button on his vocation 
with the gifts and things that God has given him, where he gets to begin to restructure his life around what makes him happy, where his comfort and his ease are the bottom line. He's rejecting this. Notice that the psalmist is on mission. This psalmist is saying, God, don't forsake me. That's the psalmist's way of saying, don't let me die. Don't let me die until I've declared your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. He's on mission. I have a mission, and it's going to look different for all of us, but this psalmist's mission is, I need to pass on in word. I need to proclaim. I need to tell stories rooted in the text and stories of what I've seen God do to the next generation. God, please don't let me die till I get it all out. Once I get it all out, then you can then you can die, bring me into your presence. But I, I got a mission. This psalm this is so antithetical to how most people move into and how most people are invited to move into the final few decades, where it's like, the next generation, don't don't worry about them. You've you've paid your dues. You've put in your time. You've raised kids, maybe you're raised or almost done raising grandkids. That counts as that like just this is about you now. This is where you can begin to shift into saying, yeah, what have I been putting off? What have I been denying myself? What have I been sacrificing for the other people? I don't need to do that anymore. But I can begin taking and feel justified doing so because of this trail behind me of sacrifice and service. Psalm, this psalmist isn't living out that way. He's, he's living out something called generativity. Psychologist Jean Piaget said uh, the most significant spiritual challenge of the latter decades is generativity versus stagnation. Generativity defined as creativity and service of the young. Saying, I'm going to figure out how to leverage all of the things that God has built into me in service of the next generation. Generation, generativity, and creativity. Generational creativity, generativity. So when things like the April 29th opportunity come up. Like Judy said, whether that's helping in the kitchen to provide food and refreshment for teachers, whether it's saying, maybe I'm going to take a risk and become a teacher or learn at this age how to leverage that. Maybe I have a role to proclaim. We're involved in things like that. We see the psalmist doing that. If we don't, then Jean Piaget says, what, what sets in is a stagnation. And again, it's that either boredom, disengagement with life, apathy, depression in its most extreme form. It's a very dangerous thing. But we see the psalmist modeling, I'm at the end of my life, but I still have something to give. There's still a legacy to leave for um, my children, the children of this community, my grandchildren, the grandchildren of this community. This psalmist is on mission. In his book, Rethinking Retirement, John Piper contrasts the modern conception of retirement with a biblical view, view, which he describes as vital living to the end of your life. And he says, "Um, While popular conceptions of retirement invite us to focus on our needs, our wants, our desires, the Bible holds out a more dynamic and hopeful call to those in the latter stages of life, finishing life to the glory of God. Finishing life to the glory of God. He says, Finishing life to the glory of God means finishing life in a way that makes Christ look glorious. It means living and dying in a way that shows Christ to be the all-satisfying treasure that he is. So it would include, for example, not living in ways that make the world look like it's your treasure. Which means that most of the suggestions this world offers us for our retirement years are bad ideas. 
They call us to live in a way that would make this world look like our treasure. And when that happens, Jesus is belittled. And his conclusion is this. Finishing life to the glory of Christ means resolutely resisting the typical American dream of retirement. It means being so satisfied with all that God promises to be for us in Christ that we're set free from the cravings that create so much emptiness and uselessness in retirement. Instead, knowing that we have an infinitely satisfying and everlasting inheritance in God just over the horizon, that makes us leverage our few remaining years and to spend ourselves on the sacrifices of love and not the accumulation of comforts. I love that line. As a Christian, we spend our few remaining years in the sacrifices of love, not in the accumulation of comforts. You read the psalmist, he's on mission. He has a fire in his soul to follow through on this um, calling and vocation that he has in his later years. But I know pastorally that that might be rare for people. You might read that and say, "I'd, I'd like to be there, but I don't have that fire. I don't wake up with that burning in my bones to just serve serve the Lord. I do feel tired. I, I feel disengaged. Um, maybe in more, my more honest moments, I'm, I am overtaken by cynicism or apathy or just self-centeredness. I move through my day based on what seems to be the most pleasurable and comfortable thing for me. How do you get to this place? How do you reawaken? How do you reconnect with that kind of mission and passion so that we're not wasting the final decades or the final years of our lives. In that book that I mentioned, Regenerating Generations, they suggest that churches create what they call spies ministries that allow those of retirement age to lead and participate in opportunities to promote vital, uh, vital living across five areas, spiritual, physical, intellectual, emotional, and social. And the idea here is that churches would be highlighting opportunities for those of retirement age to be engaged in these things very, very consistently. To be engaging in practices that help people grow in their devotion and allegiance to Jesus. To be uh, growing and stretching themselves to maintain or to grow uh, or to build physical health and wellness, intellectual stimulation, emotional relational Uh, forgiveness, themes of restoration, how to cultivate strong friendships in later years, how to um, bring restitution to relationships that maybe need them, and and social. Do fun things. Having fun with other people. Connecting and enjoying the good things that God has brought into your life and a perspective that allows you to, to enjoy those things deeply. Pastor Andy Stanley says, we don't tend to drift in good directions we discipline and prioritize ourselves into good directions. And so this template might be a good way for some of us to begin structuring your week, maybe even your day. You know, when I think about someone who wakes up and all things being equal has the whole day ahead of them that they have tremendous control over. Maybe in some cases there's not a lot of demands currently pressing in on them. I think if someone were to lay out at the start of the week, here is my plan every day to engage my relationship with God in a creative, interesting way. This is what I'm going to do every day. This is every day what I'm going to do to build strength physically. This is what I'm going to 
um, a video or a book that I'm going to be reading to, to stimulate myself intellectually. These are letters that I'm going to write. These are phone calls that I'm going to make. These are people's homes I'm going to show up to and build relationships or help facilitate, just provide care for people relationally. And uh, this is some things that I have on the, on the schedule this week. I'm just going to have fun with people, just invite some friends over. It's very hard for me to imagine if someone was intentional along these areas and set one thing every day to do, but certainly one thing every week, that you wouldn't have a pretty rich and fulfilling final few years, final few decades. Especially if all of that was done through the lens of when you first got up in the morning and saying, God, this is kind of my agenda. I want, I want to grow in these areas. Help me to deepen my love for you as I do. And use me through these areas to bless and serve other people. So this isn't just a make-work project. What are things that I can do to keep myself busy all day long? I want to grow in these areas and deepen myself in these areas so that I can serve other people better. What would happen if even 5% of those 10,000 people turning 65 or over every single day between now and 2029, 5% of them, what if 1% of them said, this is going to be my agenda every day. This is going to be my agenda every week. I think it would be amazing. Yes, there are going to be limitations to moving into some of these things at points, but learning to adapt to those limitations and seek to be meaningfully involved in these areas would make a world of difference. Especially, again, when we're doing them through the lens, through the greater end of loving God and serving our neighbor. Verse 19. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? Though you have made me see troubles many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. I realize at this point, uh, I should have given you a heads up. Uh, I think on your like feast Sundays, I talked to Jason. He's like, yeah, we usually have someone speak for 10 or 15 minutes. I, I don't ever speak for 10 or 15 minutes. So I just realized that now we're on point two. There's only two points, but we're, we're about halfway. So some of you are like, great, it's going to wrap up soon. It's not going to wrap up too soon. So sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yeah, if you could just do like a little little homily. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't really do homilies. So, yeah, you're getting uh, two feast Sundays worth of reflections here. In verse 19 through 21, one of the things I notice is the psalmist is glorying in the anticipation of the resurrection. He's glorying in the anticipation of new creation. We might, maybe a generation ago, have said heaven, but I think there's been some good theological reflections about how heaven and new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21, which we'll, we'll talk about, and themes of resurrection all get um, come together in a really magnificent way. And uh, people, I think, are, are the richer for some of these reflections. As a Christian, if you are a Christian, aging is a pilgrimage of hope. You're on a long, uh, sometimes it seems slow, but you're on a pilgrimage of hope because you're moving towards a promised land. If you've placed your trust in Christ, if you've received his forgiveness, you are assured of eternal life. Heaven when you die, immediate usherance into the presence of God. But, heaven isn't the end of the story. You're also promised an even greater hope 
than just a disembodied heaven with God. You are promised re-embodied resurrection life in a new heavens and new earth with the resurrected Christ reigning in glory in real bodies, like Jesus' resurrected bodies. Real material reality, not disembodied spirits out in another dimension of heaven. Heaven isn't the final stage of God's redemptive plan. Revelation 21, verses 1-4 to shows us what is. John says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And what that means is, regardless of your age, regardless of what you're walking through at this particular juncture in your life, maybe it's something incredibly difficult. As you age, as you move through this season of your life, regardless of what troubles beset you, in Christ, the very best things are yet to come. Your best days are not behind you. Your best days are ahead of you. Paul even says in Romans 8, I consider that our present suffering isn't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And he's speaking to when we are resurrected and now are replanted in this perfect uh, new kind of Eden, this new heavens and new earth, and have an eternity now to serve God outside of the curse of sin. You know, think about that. I consider that our present sufferings, there are people, and maybe people in the latter stages of life, who have to endure a lot of suffering. I'm not naive to that. But Paul says, if you could just... You you can only get a dim hint hint at it, because Paul says, no no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the wonders that God has in store for those who love him. So you can stretch your imagination as far as it could possibly go and you're not actually capturing what it's going to be like. So you can only kind of get a dim hint of a glorious and amazing eternal life with Christ in a new heavens and new earth, resurrected bodies is going to be. But it's enough of a hint so that we can say, if I'm walking through this valley of the shadow of death, I know this is nothing compared. When I'm there, I'll look back on this and say, oh, I would do it again 10,000 times. It's just... This is apples and oranges. This this isn't even in the same realm of comparison. And when I think about that, it reminds me that this vision for new heavens and new earth, eternal life with God, in His kingdom fully established here, that's actually the vaccine against a conventional view of retirement. Because the conventional view of retirement comes out of the idea that when you die, that's it. So wouldn't it be a shame if you lived your whole life here, and didn't get to experience and have at least a season of your life where you were hoarding as much pleasure and joy for yourself as possible. 
And from a point of view, if you don't believe in any kind of a life after death, and if this is all there is, if you're a strict materialist, that kind of thinking does make sense. But see, when you understand that this life is about learning to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, so it's not about not enjoying God here, but I don't need to clamor for certain things here. I don't need to have anxiety over, what if I never get to see X or do this or get to engage in this or sign up for this kind of course or this kind of learning opportunity? In new heavens and new earth, I'll have all of eternity. I, I, I can go visit Europe. I, can, I don't need to worry about cramming in vacation, new learning opportunities. Um, I, I, don't, I don't need to worry about a self-centered final few stages because God is going to deliver for me then riches that don't even compare to now. So what that frees me up to do is it relieves me and releases me from kind of a, a what you know uh, some younger people call FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh, what if I, if I, don't have, I would never want to, you know, what's my bucket list? Because I want to experience all these things before I die. Most of the things on people's bucket list you're going to get in new heavens and new earth. So just, you can relax about it and just serve God now, knowing that it's coming down the pipe. So it acts as a kind of a vaccine. It doesn't need to overtake you. You don't need to clamor for it now because it's all yours in Christ. There's a single line of text in the books of Genesis that for me kind of holds this, some of these themes together in a, in a pretty powerful way, I think. It's a single line of text that conveys how God intends to use those in advanced years for greater kingdom purpose. It's a single line of text that speaks to vision and hope and faith and love, vital living well into our 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. It's a single line of text that speaks to a resolve to leave a legacy of God-honoring, lasting value instead of saying, well, what's in it for me now? How do I begin to turn life's priorities inward? That single line of text is Genesis 21:33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. At first pass, that's a little anticlimactic. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Let me tell you some context for this. This verse occurs very late in Abraham's life. He's over 100 years old. He is far past the age where most of us would assume anything of great value could be accomplished. And yet we read that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Now, a tamarisk tree is tall and beautiful. We can put up a picture of it. You can see it. Uh, like the acacia, the tamarisk tree is, is a larger tree, but unlike the acacia, it does not grow on its own in the desert. This desert tree re requires minor cultivation in its first few uh, months in order to survive. So by planting this tree, this is not Abraham simply saying, sticking something in the ground, kicking some dirt over it, and saying, well, see what happens, and walking away. He's planting this tree and he's saying for the next several months I'm going to watch over this thing and I'm going to cultivate it. Why is that significant? Why does it matter that Abraham intends to cultivate and, uh, and, and do the work necessary so that this tree can rise? 
Well, the leaves of the tree absorb a little bit of moisture in the air. And then they give off the faintest glimmer of humidity in the shade. And what that means is, under a tamarisk tree, uh, temperature is about 10 to 15 degrees. Uh, those who have uh, been to Israel say it's about 10 to 15 degrees cooler in the shade of a tamarisk tree than in the shade of any other tree because of that slight amount of humidity. So is Abraham wanting a tamarisk tree in order to bring comfort and relief to himself? That's the way we might read this, knowing what we do so far about the tamarisk tree. The answer would be absolutely not. That's not why Abraham plants this tree. Because a tamarisk tree takes three generations to grow to full size. It's extremely slow growing. And so what Jewish rabbis would say is they say, no man plants a tamarisk tree for himself. And the rabbis would say, actually, no man plants a tamarisk tree for his children. You plant a tamarisk tree for your grandchildren. And you plant a tamarisk tree understanding that you will never sit in its shade. So in this single act, in this very obscure verse that we might just skip over, Abraham is showing us what lies at the heart of a beautiful and meaningful vision for a Christ-exalting second half of life, final few decades. It's a life of faith. It's a life of hope. It's a life of love with a view to serve God's purposes beyond yourself and beyond your generation. We are called at every stage of life, but especially in the latter stages of life, not to seek immediate gratification. Not, we're not called to serve ourselves. We are called to be forward-thinking. Our task is to care for those entrusted to us presently, yes, but also to prepare a way for generations yet unborn. And in the final few decades of life, the question which should be um, building up and creating a healthy tension and anxiety in our souls is how many tamarisk trees are we, are we, are we planting? And that's a question that each of us individually have to ask. And it's a question that couples have to ask, and families need to ask, and churches need to ask. What tamarisk trees is God calling us to build in Balfour? For the residents of Balfour a hundred years from now. God can and will use us at any age. I honestly believe that. There's no age limit to the way he works. The time is right and the need is great to continue serving God by honoring and encouraging and preparing and equipping God's people to love and serve the body of Christ in the communities around us. And this applies to people of all ages. God has a mission for you and it's important. Step into that mission. Step into that vision. And that's something we all need to hear, but especially those of us who God has gifted with longevity. Let's pray.